Hi, my name is Kristen, and welcome to the next installment of the 11 Health and Technologies podcast. Today we will be talking about sex and IBD, and I will be your host. I work in the marketing team at 11 Health and Technologies, and I was the first patient coach two years ago. 11 Health is a platform company that combines smart technology, patient care support, nurse support, all together to form our own smart care. 11 Health has created their first ever ostomy smart bag, and we have been caring and supporting patients with the end goal of making their lives easier. Patient coaching is the first ever ostomy support one-to-one from an ostomy patient that knows what you're going through. Today I have with me the amazing Dr. Neil Nandy. He's a gastroenterologist, better known as a IBDologist. Personally, as an ostomy patient of seven years and a Crohn's patient of over 10 years, I am so thankful for the things that he does. Neil, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'd love to hear a background and some of your interests, and then we will dive into your experience as a doctor. Sure. Uh, Again, just want to start by saying thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's an honor and I've been uh, really pleased to be here. Uh, My name is Neil Nandi. I'm an associate professor of clinical medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And just like you said, I'm an IBDologist. Um, uh, Gastroenterologists these days are becoming more and more niche specialized. So some just focus on esophagus, just some on the pancreas. And I have the blessed fortune of just focusing on Crohn's and ulcerative colitis patients. Um, I have been... uh, uh, Many factors got me into the world of IBD. Uh, My father was diagnosed in the early 70s, shortly after immigrating to this country. He was on steroids and um, had complications of vascular necrosis to the hip, needed hip replacements. Um, Had a lot of friends who I didn't realize had IBD uh, growing up uh, when I was a much younger man uh, throughout college. Um, And as I went through med school, uh, kind of the amalgam of all these experiences kind of directed me into a career in in gastroenterology. And uh, I I found, you know, inflammatory bowel disease to be very rewarding because it's not the the quick visit. It's not just a simple visit for a a digestive illness. It's really a relationship uh, building process. So I I get to enjoy long, long term uh, relationships with my patients. Um, do my very best to get them through flares, to get them into remission, to get them healing. And then the, the byproduct of that is getting them to help graduate school and, and to get married or to date or to have kids or, or whatever their goal is. You know, that's the joy that we get. And that's actually how we measure whether they're doing well or not, if they're able to do the things they want to do. So that's a, a little bit about why I do IBDology. That's amazing. I think that's probably very rewarding for you as a doctor to see your patients kind of grow and blossom. I've had my ostomy seven years and I've had a couple different doctors um, and hearing it from your point of view, I think it's very insightful for me because I don't always hear that. I'm always the sick one. I'm on the sick side and the doctor's doing as best as they can to help, but hearing how happy it makes you to see your patients kind of probably see you less and go get to live their life. Um, I think that's awesome. Yeah. You know, just since he said it that way, you know, somebody when I was training said, you know, this is true of anything you do in life, right? Do what you do that makes you happy. And then no matter what it is, you'll always be happy because you're doing what you love. And, you know, it may sound corny, cliche, cheesy, whatever that word is, I don't care. But when 
you get to take care of patients and they do well, no matter how hard the challenge is as a doc from the doctor's perspective, because it is it can be challenging to be a clinician, you feel good, right? Because you feel like you're helping somebody, you're helping them and their family really indirectly, right? Yeah, so it's, exactly. um, it's a good feeling. So I, I feel like I'm very blessed to do what I do. Very blessed. Well, I am thankful that you are here as a doctor. So thank you from a patient. And I'm sure everyone listening is very thankful for you. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about how you became such a strong advocate for IBD outside of your office where you work. So I've seen you participate in events. You are very highly known on social media. You attend conferences. Um, you told me about a Facebook Live that you might be starting. How did you become so involved in all of this? Uh, it was by accident. It, it was not by design, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, about 2016 or so, um, I uh, was engaged by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, which is our national nonprofit um, uh, dedicated to Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And uh, asked to do, uh, you know, online uh, uh, Twitter live and Facebook live chats. Now, I, I'm in education. I'm an academic, so I love to teach. I love to teach patients. I love to teach docs, nurses, uh, students, and so I'd always done education, but I'd never done online education in this way. So I actually very reluctantly got on to, to Twitter and Facebook was advised not to do this for my personal account <laughs> and begrudgingly made a professional account um, thinking this is kind of too hoity-toity uh, for me and did, did the lives. And then what came as a byproduct of that was this tremendous positive feedback from patients. And I had all these patients reaching out with wonderful questions or appreciation for the knowledge. And it made me realize there is all this myth and misconception out there and uh, using you know social media as an advocacy platform an educational platform helped empower me to kind of fight that myth and misconception that exists out there so i felt like i was doing more service that i had more outreach and again it's the patient feedback that keeps me going because i usually think I talk too much, as you can tell, and, 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 and maybe I'm saying stuff that's obvious, but then I learn it's not and that it's helping people. So I've learned that it's, it's a good platform for me to really I help think arm them with, with good information. Yeah. Other patients are on there for education and advocacy, doctors, nurses. I think we're all here to help other patients. So you think that maybe I'm sharing too much, maybe I'm not sharing enough. Am I honest enough? But at the end of the day, we're all there to help the patients. So when you get the patients messaging you, I, I'm sure it's it's all worth it at, at that point. A hundred percent. It really is. It really is. And, you know, I've learned so much from it, too. Not just about the myth and misconception, but, you know, there is so much you can learn just by listening to patients and their caregivers sometimes, right, about things that they don't teach you in medical school or medical training, you know? Um, little tips, tricks, insights, perspectives, things you didn't even think about. And that has honestly helped me become a better doctor, pass on those tips to my patients. So it all comes full circle. Yeah, I'm sure you learn from each patient and they, those who actually tell you how they're feeling, then you can realize in your next patient, maybe you may choose to speak to them differently or maybe you may try a different tactic and that can help. Yes, 
Um, so now is the time to start to talk about sex, but more importantly for patients with IBD. Um, I loved your talk at HOPE. It was one of my favorites. Um, HOPE was the 11 Health's first ever conference in Vegas, and we had Dr. Nandy come and speak and to share a little bit about that talk sex with IBD has been one of your main focuses. Obviously, sex is a normal, important thing for everyone to have, but those with IBD struggle a little bit more than the average healthy person. Yeah. So this is, again, one of, like I was saying, this is a topic that is not talked about or taught uh, adequately in medical school, internship, residency, or fellowship, certainly not in GI. And um, it is not a focus, has not been a focus in, in for decades. But as I was seeing my patients in clinic, you know, we, the, we always ask our patients, how's your diarrhea? How's your abdominal pain? How's your arthritis, your extra intestinal manifestation IBD? And sometimes patients are doing really, really well. And what is the visit? Instead of it being a quick visit, we would find other things to talk about. Like, are they getting back to work, getting back to school? And then it started switching to, how's your um, personal life going on? How's your relationships going on? And I realized I wasn't asking about that. And it's this outcome. It's this quality of life measure that we don't ask about. And, you know, we're, you're a human. I'm a human. If you're listening to this, you're probably human. We have humanity. And part of being human is having the ability to participate in intimacy. And, and intimacy can be sexual, it can be non-sexual. But this is, again, not something that we ask about. When you're feeling ill, because you have a flare or you have pain, um, diarrhea, dehydration, you're probably not feeling like it's sexy time or intimacy time. But we're not asking you about that. And I realized that it was really important for me to ask. So that that's how the talk came up. I've been probably speaking about it for five or six years at this point. Um, and I'm glad, uh, you know, I, I was very happy that Hope uh, asked me to come and, and speak about this on such a large platform. Um, but there's a lot to talk about. Where would you like to begin? <laughs> um, I think we can begin with advice or tips you have for patients that aren't very comfortable speaking up about this. Like you said, you doctors ask about all of the health things, but really we want to talk about something that we care about. Like, I, I want to know, hey, like, I'm not doing well in my relationship because of the sexual stuff. Can you talk to me that as a doctor? You don't, Patients don't expect that conversation to come up. So mm -hmm. for those who are really struggling to even feel comfortable bringing it up, what tips would you have for them? So I'm glad that's the first starting question. So when I get into the mindset of my patients, and I've asked many of my patients this, uh, but have you ever thought about asking me about your sex life? And they say, no, <laughs> <laughs> because you're the GI doc. Um, you know, oftentimes your IBD specialist is probably one of your main doctors. You might be seeing them more than your own primary care doctor, right? And so I, I have an internal medicine background uh, even before I became GI and IBD focused. So I see myself as a primary care provider in many ways. And if I am not empowered to ask these types of questions, uh, to my patients, then I'm not helping you. So one, um, the GI doc may not ask you because they feel that they don't have the training or resources to help you, which is false. They have, they may not have the training 
but they do have the resources, meaning they know other doctors who are urologists, gynecologists, psychotherapists, sex counselors, okay? Uh, physical uh, uh, public floor therapists. That's five different types of therapists, and there's more. And then as a patient, you may feel um, encumbered because one, it's taboo. Um, to counter that, yeah, sex is a taboo subject. It shouldn't be because we all got here somehow, right? We Somebody had to, uh, mom and dad had to get together and um, have intercourse. So this is about you. You have to, if, if you're having intimacy issues, my advice is you are number one. That's the number one rule of patient care. You, the patient, are number one. And if it matters to you, it's got to matter to the doctor. And even if it's uncomfortable, you just have to ask. And more than likely, your doctor is going to give you a positive answer. And I hope that answer, if you're a doctor or nurse listening to this, is I know someone who can help you. I'm glad you you know asked these questions. So one, as a patient, it might be taboo, but just ask the question. Blurt it out. Write it down on a piece of paper. Bring a partner or a supportive friend to your visit and just ask the question. Um, and the question might be um, uh, a description of, Doc, I'm having difficulty with my intimacy or my sex life or, uh, or what have you. Do you have any resources or specialists you can refer me to? That does two things. One, it identifies the issue. And two, it takes the pressure off the doc if the doc feel, if you feel that the, your, your specialist, your GI specialist doesn't know what to do. So now the GI doctor can look, reach into his armamentarium of his pool of specialists and then refer you, right? And that's all you really need. You need it to be identified and referred. So that would be my, my first thing is speak up, ask the question, write it down, bring a friend, just blurt it out, just rip the bandage, okay, and ask. And then the doc has other therapists. And we, and we can go into areas that, that patients listening to this, other um, associations or groups that have been founded to address intimacy issues uh, by the end of this podcast. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's some very good tips and advice. Having someone there with you that you feel comfortable to bring up this conversation, maybe even the person that you um, are intimate with, that would be great. Um, I think, like you said, we should go into a couple of topics for those out there listening who still maybe aren't convinced and comfortable bringing this up just yet with their doctor. Maybe you can go over a couple of things that past patients have brought up to you that you can talk about now. So when they do feel comfortable, they can go bring it up with their doctor that they see. So anything that you want to start on, I wrote a couple of things, topics that I have in my head right now. One of them I have is infertility. I have a ton of IBD friends who have struggled with infertility, but I obviously didn't hear too much about it. You as a doctor of sex and IVD with a specialty, <laughs> I'd love to hear about maybe a story or something that you can share about um, infertility. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there is a concept in our inflammatory bowel disease patients. Now, men and women, so I, I want men to listen to this too, men who have IBD and um and 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 not just women who have ibd because this this fertility issue affects both in in different ways okay um one is this concept of something called voluntary childlessness and that is this uh, conception um or misconception that one cannot have a baby and that alone uh is is, is common and and enough to prevent people from even trying to conceive. And so there's been studies done on this, that there is a high rate of uh, voluntary childlessness, especially amongst female IBD patients. 
And um, that's, you know, that's not, that's unfortunate because, you know, it's not true. Now, there's a, a two terms I want to um, uh, bring up. There's infertility, which is the inability for an egg and sperm to join to form a zygote or an egg. Sorry, uh, uh, no, yeah. And there's also fecundity, which is um, having the right uh, uh, habitat or environment, meaning so the egg and sperm can join, but they need the right environment to carry a successful uh, embryo to full gestation and, and baby birth, okay? Those are two different things. Now, infertility, certain medications can, can make people infertile or have um, teratogenic effects on uh, a baby, birth defects. So methotrexate is a no-no in women because it causes teratogenic birth defects and can result in spontaneous abortions. Uh, Sulfazalazine can cause um, men to be um, infertile uh, in the sense that their sperm are, and motility are affected. But both are reversible. And if you stop, then, well, methotrexate, we don't want you to conceive on at all. Um, but uh, the point is, if you're not on those medicines, you can be fertile. Fecundity is different. And again, um, if we, if you can close your eyes, since this is a podcast, and you just imagine the uterus coming off of it, two fallopian tubes on left and right, and then the ovaries. An egg must travel from the ovary down the fallopian tube. A sperm must meet it, and then it implants as an egg into the lining of the uterus, and then a baby forms. If you have had um, surgery in your abdomen, especially anything near the pelvis. It's not uncommon for scar tissue to form um, around the fallopian tube, around the ovary. This can lead to changes in the pH fluid uh, environment um, in which the egg or embryo is supposed to uh, grow and mature. And um, sometimes people need to have surgeries to free up scar. Sometimes people uh, need other types of interventions to help improve this. The other thing that can happen is you can have active inflammation in your bowels. So imagine the ovary and the uterus, and right compressed against it are the small intestine and large intestine. It's all packed in there. Nobody looks so nice and neat. If you were to Google abdominal organs uh, on Google, you would just see beautiful cartoon images, but everything is packed in there. So when you have in inflammation in the intestine adjacent to the female reproductive glands, that inflammation can prevent a egg that has been inseminated by a sperm successfully. It can prevent it from growing into a full fetus. So that is fecundity. What I recommend to patients is they should seek uh, consultation uh, before conception with their IBD specialist, with their gynecologist, and um, with a what we call a high-risk uh, maternal fetal medicine specialist, not necessarily because they're crazy high risk, but MFM specialists can help understand your risk factors for fertility and or fecundity for both the male and female partners. That's great. That's a lot of information. I'm going to have to re-listen to this podcast so I can <laughs> because it's something I'm super interested in and I'm sure many people watching as well. I know hearing that there are different options if um, you are having problems uh, in the traditional way, it's great to hear that you can try other things. It's not the end point for you. So I'm glad that you ended with that. I think that's um, really great. Um, another topic I um, would like to touch on, maybe we can go into being unable to perform. So I know that you said many people 
don't feel good all the time. Maybe they're flaring, maybe they're on prednisone or they're so inflamed. Um, maybe talk about that, what patients can speak to their significant other to make them understand um, with this um, problem that they're having. Yeah. Well, you know, Kristen, I, th I think you just hit the nail on the, on the, on the head. Speak, which is yeah you said it speak to their partner right and and this is something called partner guilt so depending on whomever has may or may not have ibd in the relationship one or both um it's not uncommon and this happens in relationships of any chronic illness or no illness by the way but if one uh, partner feels uh, their needs aren't being met um and uh, because the other one be ill or vice versa the problem is people aren't talking to each other. So sometimes the person who's ill um, feels guilty, right? But, mm -hmm. and, and then the partner who is not uh, physically ill feels uh, selfish to ask for their needs to be met, right? Yep. And this leads to a lot of tension. It can destroy a lot of relationships um, and it's not helpful. But if the two just spoke to each other, right? Mm -hmm. It might be hard at first, but more oftentimes I've been told when they speak to each other, they realize that they're on the same page. And just that alone can return that kinship, that that love, uh, that support for one another and, and, and overcome tension without intimacy. Okay, so communication is key uh, Two, um, a couple of things. Um, when you have active disease, uh, it decreases libido. Okay, that's a well-documented effect, uh, effect. And that's very complex. A lot of hormones are changed. Um, whenever we have chronic illness, um, there's a high uh, chance that there's some comorbid anxiety or depression that goes along with those illnesses for good reason. Those are understandable. Those are normal, in fact, but they affect libido and drive. And so treating the underlying disease is important. Certainly being on steroids is not helpful. Um, and so trying to wean the steroids, trying to find a non-steroidal therapy is always best. So a biologic or a small molecule, something that gets rid of the steroid. Now that's a whole nother podcast there, but, yeah. um, the steroids cause acne, weight gain, stretch marks, hair where you don't want it. And they're not fun. Yeah. So, um, you know, getting off those meds can help and treating the underlying disease. So following up with your doc. Other things that happen are in men, for instance, are erectile dysfunction. And men don't like to talk about this, Kristen. Would you agree? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. And I, if you're a man out there, I want to tell you, I have been very fortunate uh, to have the training I do and for men to confide in me. So if you're a man out there, I'm telling you right now, as a man, okay, that erectile dysfunction is common. There's nothing wrong with you. And there are treatments there for you. Um, treatments you've heard of, treatments you uh, may not have considered before. So treatments you heard of are pills that you take to help increase blood flow to the penis and the corpus cavernosum that's called sildenafil, commercially known as Viagra, another one called Cialis. There's also uh, bands or erection rings that hold blood to, at the base of the penis to engorge the penile uh, pumps that uh, help engorge the penis with blood and even penile implants. And there are specialized urologists out there. These are highly trained and skilled surgeons that can help with sexual dysfunction in men. Um, and these types of devices help a lot. Now for women, something common, and this happens um, in IBD, you know, re regardless of age, but certainly with increasing ages, vaginal dryness, 
um, um, and and there are estrogen or sorry uh, sorry yeah, not there are estrogen suppositories for the vagina in postmenopausal women, um, but there's also um, non-estrogen based therapies that can help return uh, lubrication um, to the vaginal wall. Um, Kristen, you you know that you know surgery can have so many tolls on the body, and so a lot of pelvic scar can happen. And yeah. that scar can lead to painful intercourse for women, um, uh, and that we call dyspareunia. Now, fortunately, um, there are many ways to help with dyspareunia. Uh, first, uh, counseling, all that scar from surgery can affect the, the muscles that not only help with um, defecation, uh, peeing, but also with intercourse. So having a consult for uh, pelvic floor physical therapy or biofeedback therapy is huge. I'm trying to give you as much information as possible. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're a lot of the things that you touched on. I was going to be my next question. So that's amazing. But I think something to point out, all of these things that you're talking about, people may be embarrassed to bring up. They may think, I, I think that maybe I'm selfish or want for wanting to talk about this. So maybe I'm not going to talk about it. But I want to just hear from you. How important is sex? Is It's a natural thing. It's something that we all... I would say need in our life. So maybe coming from an actual doctor talking about how important sex is for just living a healthy, normal lifestyle. Maybe others may feel a little bit less embarrassed to bring it up. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll add some some cap to some tweaks to what you were saying there. I I do believe yeah. that um, that sex is important, but I don't I don't know that I agree that it's everything. I think that intimacy. Um, yes. You know, sex. You know, sex can just be, you know, a, a quick, you know, all jokes aside, it can just be wham, bam, thank you, thank you, ma'am or sir, right? <laughs> um, uh, but it, it can be, it's, you know, in most, m many people will consider it to be a form of intimacy beyond just the physical. And I think that you don't have to have intercourse to have intimate fulfillment. That That's what I really feel is so important that... It, it, it can it doesn't have to be intercourse to fulfill one uh, oneself but certainly if that is what you as an individual desire anybody listening to this podcast then you deserve it and there's a way we can work on a way and um, but at a, at a minimum it's about the intimate fulfillment um, this is a good time just to to bring up a couple of resources actually you know we said for those who might be listening out there I feel uh, a little hesitant to still bring it up and I hear this doc on, on the podcast. He's telling me it's okay. But you know what? I don't know if my specialist is going to be so cool. Let me give you some resources. And these are for associations and groups. They have literally only trained to speak all day, every day, about intimacy, relationship counseling, and sex. Okay? So these that's all they do. So they listen to this every day. This is normal. And I think you're going to feel the most comfortable knowing that the person you're the specialist, the professional you're going to, that's exactly what they're trained to do. listen to you about sexual therapy and intimacy issues. So a couple of organizations that I would recommend are the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Um, they have a website. It's everything is www. But AAS as in sex, E, C as in Charlie, T as in Tom.com, A-A-S-E-C-T.com, American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. There's also the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. 
That is AA, M is in mom, F is in Frank, T is in Tom, dot O-R-G. A-A-M-F-T dot O-R-G. Um, and then there's also the United Ostomy Associates of America, um, which is, and, um, which is UOA.org. They have wonderful free literature on their website. Um, they're the, one of the oldest nonprofit associations in, uh, in the country. Um, and they have um, a lot of information on intimacy uh, with um, having an ostomy, for instance. And then there's also, um, you know, patient coaches. <laughs> Um, patient coaches, yes. right? Which is another wonderful patient support organization, right? Nobody knows what you're going through like patients. And um, another nonprofit organization called Girls with Guts, which is female specific, um, uh, which, uh, you know, 18 and up uh, patients who have um, some type of bowel disease, IBD or not. Um, uh, so that's a good sense of community there. And I have more sites, more websites I can uh, and arrange for you. But those few, Kristen, are, are sites that People can reach out. They've got you can you can go on their site, put your zip code in, find a counselor, um, and see if you can get self-referred. And again, your GI doctor can help you. Um, for women, your gynecologist can help you. For men, your GI or your urologist can help you. But you have to ask the question first. Okay, you have to ask the question. Ask for ask for help. Ask for a referral. That that's where it begins. If if you have issues. Just know you're not the only one. Otherwise, none of these organizations would exist. They wouldn't be in business if it wasn't a real problem. Okay? Definitely. And I will add all of those websites and organizations in the details for the podcast. So you guys all have those. I know that you may be driving or doing something. So it'd be hard to take all these notes. But we will definitely have that information for you guys. Um, I think... It is time to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about Eleven Health and uh, kind of transition into that. And um, I have a couple questions for you. Sure. So the first one is How did you first hear about Eleven Health and how do you think your goals to relate to Eleven Health? So, as a patient, um, I found Eleven Health and becoming a patient coach very valuable to me because I could help other patients like me going through things I went through, but I couldn't do anything about it. So Eleven Health has that similar goal and mission to prevent things like that happening before they happen and to just make those patients' lives easier with an ostomy. So how, how would you say that your, your goals relate to Eleven Health and what you think about what we're doing now? So one thing I've been so... Uh, fascinated by is is the history and foundation of Eleven Health. I, I know, um, hopefully, our, our listeners know the the historical foundation of how Eleven Health came about. But it's an inspiring story. And when I take care of my patients in clinic, and I listen to how challenging their lives have been, and I always think to myself, I was like, how how can we be in the twenty first century and not make life easier? We have so much access. Te te technology, so such a wealth of information and educational knowledge. Why are we making using that technology and making it better for patients? It's such it's such there, and that's exactly what Eleven Health has done. Um, you know, with ostomy care, you know, to say some of what our community knows is the obvious, but you know, man, dehydration, right? Electrolytes. These shouldn't be issues yet. They're uh, issues that are taken for granted by healthcare companies and insurance companies. 
and uh, they don't re you know look you know there are not enough resources I feel from an insurance company standpoint to make care better to prevent dehydration and trips to the emergency room to do electrolyte repletion and Eleven Health has come up with products to help support the patient on a technological aspect to understand how dehydrated they are and also the sense of community that we have with the patient coaches right so it's it's really built on patients and then technology uh, to support our ostomates so that's what i found so fascinating that's what drew me and why i was so privileged to speak at hope i have a patient right now who i actually just saw day before yesterday who has who is using um uh the the new bag and is loving it and so hearing that you know and she she heard about it from me doing hope so you know i'm i'm, I'm extremely pleased to see that is finally getting out there. Yeah, that's great. I want to thank you from the whole Love and Health team to um, for sharing about what we're doing to your patients because it's great to hear that she is enjoying it and it's helping her. And um, that dehydration risk that you pointed out is super important for patients. A lot of them may not um, be knowledgeable about that from the beginning and then later realize when they have that issue or they're back in the emergency room, how important it really was. So that's one of my favorite things that I think 11 Health focuses on because to this day, I've had Crohn's for over 10 years and it's still an issue. Dehydration is yeah. always going to be there. And if you don't focus on that, it, it will bite you in the butt if you're not paying attention to it. So um, I think those are great things that you touched on. Uh, my second question um, would be kind of just thinking about where do you see healthcare in the next five years? So we have that smart bag. There are other wearables, digital technologies out there for patients. Do you see that continuing to grow and benefit all types of patients out there? And how do you plan to contribute to this innovation that you may see? Yeah, so um, if you um, know, I know you know, uh, Kirsten, but to our listeners, yeah. if you know more about my background, um, I have been doing um, stool transplants for just over a decade now um, and um, very fascinated with the gut microbiome and, and convinced that it is a big contributor to all sorts of illness, including inflammatory bowel disease. And at the end of every one of my talks, when I give this talk about uh, stool transplant, I end it with smart toilets <laughs> and, um, and and what we have here with Alfred is a smart ostomy bag, right? And it's, it's, a, it's exactly the same concept. I think in five years, inflammatory bowel disease is going to be a model for so many other illnesses and other organs for connected smart care. And what I mean by that is we're going to be applying technology more to our patient's benefit, not because it's cool, but we're going to have Alfred, you know, two or three or three or 4.0 um, <laughs> uh, looking at IV flu or, or dehydration status, electrolyte status. We're going to be monitoring stool markers of inflammation at home. We're going to be predicting flares three to six months before they even occur because of stool uh, assays done at home in the home toilet. Um, we're going to be looking at, with patient permission, um, looking at their search profiles um, uh, on Google or Instagram and being able to predict when they're going to flare. And what I'm referencing is some of the research that's been done actually by a wonderful colleague here at University of Pennsylvania, uh, not in IBD, but looking at people's search histories to actually predict when they may go to the ER for um, 
uh, diabetes or uh, depression or suicidal ideation attacks. We're, we're hoping to take some of that same technology and understand when patients are going to flare by looking at their social media. But I really think that we're going, and then also telehealth. Right now, when you're an IBD patient, you have an urgency or emergency. ER, you know, is only going to help you so much. You need to see your doc or your nurse, but you can't get in. And But if you can just pull the pull your doc or team up on your phone, that's going to be life-changing, right? We can get an eye on you, tell you if, you if you know what to do to help get you better. So I think we're going to see that IBD patients are going to have more connected health care. It's going to improve the ability to stay out of the ER, stay out of the hospital. I'm hoping it will prevent people from going on steroids and have faster um, addressment of their issues. That's great. All of those things that you touched on is the future that all of patients, I would say from a patient point of view, are hoping for, but also doctors like you and nurses, they all want to see making things easier for the patients. And I think technology and like you said, the telehealth, that makes it easier for the patient to get the care that they need. Not about convenience, but really about what they need as a patient. Going to the ER to be seen by an ER doctor and not your actual physician that knows about your health background isn't going to be as beneficial as getting the care you need at that time. So I'm glad that you touched on those points and um, you had a lot to say about the future. So it's always great to be thinking about the future and how you can kind of benefit that. I mean, I'm sure doctor speaking from me, <laughs> but yeah, that's all that I have right now to ask you. I'm sure that I'll see you soon on here again in the future, but I hope that all of you listeners out there learned a lot about sex and IBD and took in the tips and notes and education that Dr. Nandy shared with you guys. Like I said, I'm going to include the resources and websites in the notes so you guys all have those right there for you. And if you have any questions, I'm sure Dr. Nandy would be happy to answer those. His social media at sign for Twitter, Instagram, I, I believe Facebook as well is yes. at FitWitMD. Do you want to spell that, Neil? Just so I... Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, like named after fitness witness. So FitWitMD, F as in Frank, I-T-W-I-T-M-D. Don't be a nitwit, be a fitwit. So <laughs> it, 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 it's a funny name. I, and it was too late to change it by the time it took off. So. But no, if you are a patient out there, you know, join me. I'm, I'm particularly active on social media and I, I do get back to pretty much everybody with questions, happy to. And um, if you're feeling particularly generous, I'll be, I, every year, I try to raise money um, for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation for research. And uh, 82 cents of every single dollar that we raise uh, goes exactly to research. And that is um, a very, very high percentage. Uh, and that research money will hopefully help fund some of the work that I want to do. Uh, to help improve the care of IBD patients. So um, if you can, um, our team name is Pens Guts the Runs, um, and it's for Take Steps uh, for Crohn's and Colitis, and, and you can find the link posted on any of my social media sites. So thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here today. It's It's been a pleasure just even having this extra conversation with you. I know we spoke in the past at Hope, but it's always a pleasure um, learning more about you and what you're doing. Thank you so much. All right. 
I will see you guys soon on the next podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. Bye. Today we have with us Fong, here to talk about colorectal cancer awareness. Hello, thank you for having me. Talk, 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 a little bit more. We're going back and forth, whatever. (laughs) Now we would like to introduce Fong a little bit better. She is the president of the Colon Club, a colon cancer survivor, and the 11 Health Senior Product Manager. Fong, can you talk a little bit about your background Maybe share with us your schooling, um, past work life, family life, or anything that you would like to share. Yes, so um, I was actually a music performance major in college. I kind of fell into the insurance and data world, and I've been doing that for, gosh, over 20 years now. I'm not sure how that time passed, but it did. Um, I'm married, my husband is Eddie, and we have a daughter, Taylor, who is about to graduate college, and that's kind of (laughs) crazy. Um, we just added a fur baby to the family. We are completely in love with her, and, uh, our new girl is named Reagan. And, um, I do spend a lot of my time as an advocate in the colorectal cancer community, but aside from that, I try to find time to go horseback riding because I'm working my way towards being able to jump with my pony. Oh my gosh, you have a horse. That's so cute. Of course, that's the thing that I point out out of all of that, but I did, I'm already learning a lot more about you than I already knew. Uh, Fong is now working at 11 Health, so we are both in the office. So I get to learn a little bit more today as all of you are going to. So now that we know a little bit more about what makes Fong Fong, um, I'd like to start by talking about colorectal cancer. So colorectal cancer is a cancer of the colon or the rectum. Oftentimes it is referred to as just colon cancer, but we cannot forget those who have had or currently have rectal cancer as well. The month of March is colorectal cancer awareness month, and that is why I've explained this. All month long, cancer survivors, their loved ones, and many others find creative and empathetic ways to spread awareness for this community. Fong being part of this community, I know she has a lot to share and teach all of us about her journey with battling cancer. Fong, can you share um, your whole process of being diagnosed with cancer, kind of what symptoms you had, I know it's been a very long journey, but we're all here to listen and learn, and I may stop you here and there to ask a little bit more about certain things, but go ahead and start. Well, I got married with Eddie back in 2006, and it was a whirlwind, it was exciting, and Um, You know, I started having these really bad stomach cramps um, as I was planning the wedding. And I noticed that a lot of my friends and my family started saying, are you losing weight because you're already, you know, very slight. You can't lose any more weight. What are you doing? Um, And that was weird because I was literally eating everything I could and trying to gain weight at that time. Um, 
So I went to my primary care doctor and um, asked about, you know, the stomach cramps. I noticed that there was some blood in my stool. And um, these are kind of telltale symptoms, Um, although really some colorectal cancer patients reported that they had no symptoms at all. So, um, you know, in my case, I actually did ask for a colonoscopy um, and he kind of poo-pooed me. Ha ha, poo-poo. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm a little girl with the poop jokes. Um, so he, he basically said, you're too young. It's not cancer. You know, you don't need a colonoscopy, um, but we'll do some labs and see. And so it came back that I was anemic. So he's like, well, that probably explains some of the fatigue you've been feeling, and I'll bet the stomach pain is from, you know, stress between work and planning your wedding and all that. So he said, uh, here's some iron pills um, to help with the anemia. Um, You'll be fine. And I didn't question it. You know, I, I, I just, I didn't know any better. I was so young. I was only 28 at that time. And um, so I went on, planned my wedding, and got married, moved up to Northern California, you know, a week later. Um, And, you know, summer came and and we were playing outside and I I just had to sit down. You know, my daughter was nine at the time. And I I just all of a sudden felt really tired. And, you know, my husband came and he he checked on me and he said, oh my God, you're burning up. We need to get you to the doctor. And I just said, it's a summer cold. I'm fine. You know, just leave me alone kind of a thing. And, And he just, he's like, nope, we are going. And he dragged me. And when I got there, I weighed in at about 85 pounds. Um, And to put it in perspective, my normal weight was probably about 105. So, you know, I was really low. And um, so thankfully, the nurse practitioner that we saw recognized an issue, um, said, I can help you with the fever, but I want you to see a gastroenterologist for the stomach pains. And, um, And so the gastro just said, I don't like any of your answers to my questions because it doesn't point to anything. Let's just do a colonoscopy, rule out a few things. Um, He found it in my rectum right away when he went in. Um, We had to wait a week for the confirmed diagnosis, but he's like, yeah, it's, we know what it is. I've seen this. And um, so I was the only young patient at the cancer center and I felt really out of place. like I said, our daughter was nine, but she really understood that mommy was sick and she'd help take care of me. She'd, she was actually the one who would track my meds for me because a little bit of chemo brain going. So she would, you know, have the little notebook next to me and she would write down what did I take and when did I take it to make sure that I was on schedule. Um, but really, my, my saving grace was my husband, Eddie. He was nurse Eddie. He was work partner Eddie. You know, everything he just took over. Um, and gave me the time and space I needed to rest. And he just said, you concentrate on getting better. I'll handle the household and everything else. And, you know, honestly, it was really hard for him because at times, I, I don't know if he knew if he was coming or going. Um, was it 6 a.m. or 6 p.m.? Do I need to get our daughter to school or take her to soccer? You know what I mean? Um, but he really embraced the caregiver role beyond what I could expect. I think a caretaker and caregiver are not always given the credit that they deserve. Uh, We have our doctors who care for our health. Um, You going to the primary doctor 
was a lot different than you going to the doctor that was actually going to give you that correct diagnosis. So I think it was great that first you went to the primary doctor, you took charge, you said you wanted a colonoscopy, but they weren't as educated as a doctor that was specialized in what you were going through. But for a caretaker, they do everything. They take you to your appointments. They get you that blanket when you're freezing. They make your food. They take care of your children. And speaking from experience, my caretakers, my mom and dad, have done everything for me. Mm -hmm. So hearing that your husband was there to even take you to that gastroenterologist and convince you that you weren't okay, I think we all need to take a second and think about those who take care of us even those who don't have a chronic illness, be thankful for those people because they do everything for us. And without them, you have to think about what life would be like. So I think it's it's great that your husband is there. And, and he... honestly, I've, I've always said it's harder on the caregivers than it is on the patients because we know what's going on with our bodies. And here they are just always worried about us and not knowing to what extent can they do things for us um, and, and let us heal. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes you can feel helpless with just what you're going through, but then you have to think about the people watching. My mom sits there and she can't make me better. Nothing's gonna take a disease away from you, but things like her being next to me make me feel better. And we have to remind our caregivers that Yeah, it's really important. Yeah, so, you know, I I was really lucky in all this because aside from having just my husband and my daughter to really be there for me, um, I found the Colon Club, and <clears throat> excuse me, and that was the support forum that I, I, I got. Um, I was never one to sit around in a circle at a cancer center with people who were 20, 30, 40 years older than me and feel like I had this shared experience because it was really different. I had different worries being so young. Um, Work, certainly, you know, we were trying to start a family and all of a sudden infertility came into the mix and all of that was really hard. And my husband and I basically white knuckled it through for a while. And once we found that support, you know, that's when I started learning a little bit more about being able to be vocal about my thoughts and wishes on my own health care. Yeah. So the Colon Club is an organization that has different colorectal cancer patients, correct? It is. We focus on the under 45 age group because, like I said, the, the, the worries and the issues that you face are very different. Um, you know, issues with dating and when do I tell somebody, do I tell somebody, um, are often issues for young folks who, you know, obviously are in the dating range but not married yet. Um, it's also how am I going to continue my career? Um, what long-term loss of income is there going to uh, be impacted in my life? I think finding those different tactics and plans with others who are in a similar age group is, is really great. Um, how did you find the colon club? And also, I had a, a question. Um, did, does cancer run in your family? I had absolutely no family history of it before my diagnosis. Oh. That being said, 
um, only in the last few months I found out that my cousin was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. Wow, so this is something that's very unknown. Others may not even have a family member, but maybe they do along the line and they just don't know. That's, that's exactly it. I mean, I come from a background, you know, I'm, I'm Vietnamese and Chinese, so you don't ex- necessarily have those health records that are as prevalent here and available. I'm sure many of you guys out there, if you've been diagnosed with any type of cancer, you may have that unknown answer. How did I get the cancer? Usually it runs in your family, but maybe maybe you don't have as many connections to your family, just like Fong. Um, so back to the colon club. Um, how did you first find the colon club? <laughs> so I was out um, looking for a new uh, home with my husband and uh, we ran into this realtor. We were walking through that, the potential house, and um, Eddie had to run out to grab me a bottle of water because I was kind of flagging for a second. And you know, the realtor asked if I was okay, and I kind of explained, "Yeah, I'm going through chemo." And uh, he he looked at me kind of side glance and said, uh, "What kind of cancer do you have?" And I said, "Rectal." And he's like, "Oh my God!" And he lifted his shirt to show me his scar. And um, so I was like, oh my God. So my husband came in to us, lifted shirts, showing each other oh, our no. scars. <laughs> nice to meet you, sir. Right? <laughs> and so he was like, um, I, I'm, I'm sure I know where this is going, but how the heck did you even get here? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he, the realtor asked me if I had ever heard of the Colon Club, um, which I had not. And he's like, oh, you need to check them out. Um, and he, I, I just thought, okay, back burner, kind of an odd thing, but sure, why not? So later that night, I took a look, and I, I just like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Look at all these people who are young with colorectal cancer. It's not just me. Um, and so that was like a revelation, and um, I started learning so much, just what questions to ask that I didn't even know to ask. Um, being able to walk through steps that somebody had walked through before me was so helpful because one of the scariest things for me was just the unknown, you know, and, and to have somebody be able to tell you, okay, here's what you're going to go through. Um, here's some of the things that might help. And that it's like a, a, a 101 on what you're about to encounter, right? And that was so helpful to me. And it really took away a lot of any of the unknown fears. Yeah. I think most of the time in life, we have anxiety or fears about not knowing. Mm-hmm. So you spend all that time worrying about something that could happen when you could really just live in the present and figure out later what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So the Colon Club, is this a form of education that you can find online? Have you met with them in person? Is this like a Facebook group that you just talk to them virtually? What is the Colon Club? How, how do you come in contact with those who are members? So there's a few different ways. Um, the forum is definitely a great resource because um, everybody on the forum, and this is not Facebook, um, it's online but we all get to hide behind a username. So you're anonymous. So the great thing about that is it really frees people up to be able to talk about the most intimate 
details of their diagnosis and their treatments without fear of being judged because everybody else really understands, they really get it. Um, and it's not only a judgment thing, but just there are certain things that we don't feel comfortable necessarily talking to our friends about. Um, and for some people, even their families, right? You know, how do I tell XYZ family member that they're being toxic in their approach without having to be confrontational? You know, do I, is, you know, these are all things that have been discussed and, and I think that it really helps to have a, a sounding board. Yeah, I think giving them that option to kind of have a little bit of privacy about who they are is really great because maybe you make some closer friends in this group and you exchange phone numbers and then you actually know each other's names. That gives you guys the option. Mm -hmm. And for people who want to share even more details, you know, we are on Facebook as well as, of course, Instagram and Twitter, all the usual social media (laughs) outlets. Um, But, you know, as far as Facebook goes, it's where we push a lot of information, um, you know, and, and share events that might be happening. Um, so, you know, third part of it is uh, the Colon Club, Colon Camp is what we call it. Um, it's an annual retreat where we, we bring together um, survivors and caregivers. And it really is the most amazing experience because you immediately connect with this group of strangers through your common diagnosis, um, whether it's a caregiver or survivor role. It's just, it's such a bonding experience. And for a lot of people, they don't have that level of connection in their lives. Um, And then we, over the course of the week, kind of teach them how to tell their stories um, because that's the first step, I think, in being an advocate is being able to tell your story. Yeah, and being surrounded by those who understand when you can share those story Mm -hmm. is even great. So you go to this camp, with other people who are just like you. Exactly. So maybe some of you don't feel good. I'm sure the camp has resources for those uh, nurses, doctors, things like that, just in case um, they need that. So we actually um, are very close to, um, well, Nashville is about 45 minutes, but you know we're, we're close to doctors and hospitals, so good. we do make sure that all that is taken care of. Um, we also make sure that everybody understands that the idea is for you to rest when you need to. Um, be go ahead and feel free to be pampered because we will do that. You know, the, everything's catered, so you have oh amazing meals all week long. Um, we do your laundry on site, wow. so you know I, we we do everything to make everybody feel like you can do absolutely nothing, or you can go swing on the rope swing and jump in the pool, whatever you want to do. Yeah, I remember seeing pictures. Uh, recently, we just put out a blog that Fong wrote about Colin Camp. And some of the pictures were a bunch of the people jumping into the lake. So mm-hmm. is the camp by a lake? So Five Star Retreat is where we have our camp. And boy, it is a retreat. <laughs> they have this gorgeous lake. There's canoeing, there's fishing, there's paddle boating, you know, all of that. And then there's the, the main lodge where we're able to house everybody, um, you know, girls dorm, guys dorm. Um, and there's the creek, there's hiking trails. I mean, it really is everything you could want it to be. And if you don't want to go far or do anything, there's a pool you can just kind of float in. So if someone were to want to go to this camp, how could they apply? Applications typically open up in November. 
um, and they remain open through the end of January. So all you have to do is fill out the application, attach a proof of diagnosis, and you know we we set, we select through a selection committee. Um, usually, it's I mean it's it's for diversity of backgrounds and making sure that all. Um, like ostomates versus not, um, ethnic diversity, of course, colon versus rectal, staging, like, you know, where are you in the United States? All of these are puzzle pieces. Um, and it's, it's exciting to bring people from all over the country together in this one place for this amazing experience. I learned this in the blog, but I know when you were at Colon Camp, you thought about being the president of Colon Club. Um, how is that going right now? It is a crazy fun experience. Um, the idea that I have the opportunity to help people in um, directing what the Colon Club is doing and to have an active hand in knowing the people that we're touching, it's, it's such a feeling of fulfillment and purpose. Yeah, just hearing about it, I think you should be proud of just being part of this organization. I didn't know about it before you, and I know there are a lot of ostomy organizations, but people going through cancer really need another person who's been there. And I have not been through cancer, but I have IBD and I've went through a lot of struggles. But you, you have been battling cancer for the last 10 years. Are, are you currently still battling? Are you cancer-free? What, what's currently going on with your health? So it's been actually almost 13 years. Um, the first 10 years, um, I was not an ostomate. I actually um, have had just about every treatment that you could imagine, um, with few exceptions. But it's been a long process and a long journey, but like you said, having that fellowship and, and community really helped. Um, and I, I think it's worth noting that everybody on staff and on the board of the Colon Club is volunteer. It is 100% volunteer run. Nobody takes a salary in any way, shape, or form. Wow. Um, all of us have been touched by cancer in one way or another, and we all need to give back. So, you know, I... I was one of the lucky ones in that when, I, when it was time for me to get my ostomy, I was already 10 years in with a network of people that I could ask all these questions to. Um, I didn't have the feelings of stigma because it was something that I was already used to. I had been exposed to it. I've had long conversations. Like It really wasn't a big deal to me. And I recognized that that's not the case for everybody. Um, a lot of others who have to talk about their ostomy um, surgery, get a little bit nervous of what is life gonna be like? Um, am I gonna be that weird person that nobody wants to talk to? Um, is this gonna be so gross? Do I smell? All these things, you know? <laughs> so many stigmas. A lot of people just see ostomies as um, something that belongs on an older person, an elderly person. And that's definitely not the case. And I think now we're working together to spread that awareness. Mm -hmm. But like I'd mentioned, March is specifically for colorectal cancer awareness. And I know that you have been doing many things for this. What does this month mean to you? I know the whole colon club organization is a way for 
cancer members to speak about their experiences, but for you guys to all bring that awareness, what, what does that mean to you? I think that it's really, like you said, awareness to um, reach out to kind of put Cohen's where they don't belong. Um, at the dinner table, talk poop, talk, to, talk about your colons, it's okay. You know, uh, if you think back, breast cancer used to be a stigma. We didn't talk about our boobs. No, never. Um, <laughs> so now it's butts and guts, right? Check them both. And um, I, I think that it's really a great opportunity to not only share education, um, to reach out to people who normally wouldn't necessarily hear it, but also to be loud and proud. You know, there's a lot of blue being worn throughout the month and just great pictures and um, I, a lot of people who go, oh my God, I had no, no idea this was a part of your story. And, um, and, and it's really wonderful when you hear somebody come up to you and say, I got my colonoscopy because of your story. Oh, God. I think spreading that awareness and giving others the ability to learn from what you went through, because it seems like in the past 10 years, you learned from so many people. By the time you were getting your ostomy, you just felt so comfortable. Mm -hmm. You knew exactly what was going to happen. You knew that life was going to be easier. And that was all because of other people. And now you can be their example. And really, life is not just easier, but it's better. For me personally, that's my experience was being able to free myself from the bathroom and do things that I actually could not do before. Like I can go on an extra long hike now and not be panicked about, am I going to have to duck behind a bush? (laughs) (laughs) Those are real things that we think about. I'm thinking about in the car. Am I going to have to dive out of the car or find a bag to go in? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It's scary. But all of that anxiety has been lifted. But, you know, I, I really cannot say thank you enough to Eleven Health for donating the ostomy bear because being able to share that with everybody, it's not only talking about, look at how cute this bear is, but it, it creates a, a venue for people to be able to talk about ostomies with children, you know, why it's not different and scary that somebody's pooping in a bag. Um, and, and it makes it um, not weird but it makes it a little bit more um, accessible for those kids to understand, you know, and and it's such an adorable bear anyway, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we've partnered with the Colon Club to do a ostomy bear giveaway. Eleven Health has the bear, like she'd mentioned, and Fong has led selling raffle tickets on the Colon Club website, so... Go ahead and check that out if you guys hear this in time. Um, You brought up kids, and I think it would be really cool to touch on this really quick. How does your daughter feel about your ostomy bag? Does she want one too? I've heard a lot of stories (laughs) where people just put bags on their stomach, the kids do, because they want to be like mom or dad. Well, she's older now, so I don't. I, I think she would have outgrown that phase. You know, that again, is true. She I, is older. <laughs> I only got this what two or three years ago. That's so, true. Um, yeah. so she was in college at that point. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's just kind of funny how how kids react, isn't it? They do. Yes, I have a friend that his nephew he saw his bag and he came out of the room and said. I have a bag now, like auntie or uncle, and I love it. So I, I think it's great because the more we normalize it, yeah. the more others won't react negatively. Right. So I think I 
think this would be a good time to talk about any tips that you have for those who are battling cancer to end this podcast. So I would say one of the most important things is for you to not be afraid to ask questions um, of your doctor. You know, not just about what's that, but um, to also be able to voice your opinion of, well, here's the quality of life that I want. If I go through this treatment, what are some of the side effects? Because it's like, for example, it's important to me that I want to be able to go horseback riding, for example. Will this prevent me either short term or long term from doing that? Because then, you know, those are considerations that your doctor may not have thought of because they're really focused on how do I make you better? You know, and it's not only about that healing physically, it's your mental health is so important too. So you got to take care of all sides of that. Yeah, I think if you don't talk to your doctor and let them know what's going on, they're never going to know. So you have to expect from others what you expect from them. I think that's a good way to explain it from my side. So I think that's a really good tip. And I think others have learned a lot throughout this whole podcast of how you can become aware of what's going on with your body Go and get tested when you need to, when you feel that even something small is happening. Maybe you have a family member uh, that has colorectal cancer. So it's it's important for you to know because living a life of unknown uh, things is, is a really hard life to live. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank you so much, Fong, for being on the podcast today. We learned a lot, and um, I, you will be right down the right down the office. So I'm sure we'll have you again soon. Um, and I hope you guys all enjoyed. Um, we will see you next episode for Eleven Health. Um, and have a good rest of your day. Bye. I don't think I like that ending. I kind of want to end it a different way. <laughs> It's so hard to do an ending. Oh, we're um, still recording. Yeah, I'm going to okay. cut this whole okay. thing. Um, <clears throat> how do people end podcasts? They're just like, because I'm, I'm going to have a whole ending. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to thank you so much, Fong, for being here today. We learned so much. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much, Fong, for being here today. We've learned so much from you about colorectal cancer and just about your story. Um, And then I don't know what to say after that. I want you to say something, too. Thank you so much for being here. And then we say bye. Okay. Thank you so much, Fong, for being here today. We learned so much about colorectal cancer awareness and some tips to cope with what you're going through. Um, I hope we have you back soon. And we both like to say goodbye. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. Hi, my name is Kristen, and I've been living with colorectal cancer for five years. Could you imagine a life without full function of one of your major organs? My next guest has been living with colorectal cancer for 13 years. Welcome to the third episode of the 11 Health Podcast. My name is Kristen Fury, and today I have with me Fong Lee Gallagher. 
In today's episode, we will be talking about colorectal cancer. These are all real-life colorectal cancer survivors. I think you touched on so many great points and things about you, your family, your past history with work, and you have a pony, which is so great. I'm already learning so much about you. I want to welcome you to the 11 Health family. Fong just started, and she now works in the office, which is exciting. Fong, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about your journey with cancer? Go ahead and talk about anything that you'd like within your story. I may stop you to elaborate on a couple of things, but we all, but we all, but we are all here to listen and learn from you. So uh, start wherever you'd like. I think that's a lot of information that you got really quickly. How long did you have to wait until you had a confirmed diagnosis from the doctor? 11 Health is here to support you. We have our Ostomy Smart Bag technology combined with our Smart Care app, as well as our patient coaches who are there to support you at any time that you need them, and our nurses all combined to make our own form of smart care. To learn more about what we are doing, visit our website, 11health, that's 11health.com. We are also on Instagram and Twitter, at 11health and tech, as well as Facebook, at 11health. Find us on any one of our platforms, reach out with any questions you have, and we would look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again, Fong, for being here, and I will see you all in the next podcast. Bye. These are all things we have been hearing during These are all things we have been hearing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Coronavirus refers to the family of viruses, which includes SARS and MERS. This is specifically COVID-19. It's so easy to turn to social media and become stressed by seeing many posts talking about the coronavirus. But what is real and what should you believe? Today I have with me a plastic surgeon who can help share some tips he thinks can help during these times. My name is Kristen Fury and my guest is Sahil Mehta. He is the plastic surgeon and my name is Kristen Fury, and my guest with me today is Sahil Mehta, plastic surgeon and 11 Health's clinical director and innovation lead. For this episode, we will be discussing 10 tips to keep you safer during the coronavirus. Eleven Health's product is Alfred Smart Care, where high tech meets high touch. Our core model includes a nurse program, the Alfred SmartCare app available on iOS and Android devices, the patient coach program, the first ever Ostomy Smart Bag and Smart Wafer, and our facility services. Currently, we are offering a free 12-week preventative and proactive wellness program that includes consultations with our nurses, remote patient monitoring from your mobile device, and telehealth from a personal coach assigned to you. 
If you are interested in learning more about this offer, please visit our website at www.11health.com backslash remote dash patient dash monitoring backslash. You can also find us on social media. Our Instagram and Twitter handle is at 11 health and tech. That's one, one health and tech. And our Facebook is at 11 health. Number five, we are all stuck at home, but that doesn't mean we can't stay healthy. What can we all do to help remain healthy all while listening to the current direction from our governor and our president? 10th, make sure to call your doctor, urgent care, ER, or any other medical places before showing up. Why is this necessary? If you think you have the virus, how can you safely go about being tested? 